Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Jason Bedrick, who is a fellow at the Heritage Institute, which is a think tank that focuses on policy matters from a conservative or right-wing position. I believe he calls himself a classical liberal or a moderate right-wing fellow. And in this conversation, we talk about his main work, which is to promulgate school choice on the state level. So he goes from state to state and pitches various ways for policymakers to implement school choice. We talk about what school choice means, how that takes effect, how it plays out, and a bit of the history, which I was a little surprised to learn, though after thinking about it for half a minute, I wasn't so surprised to learn that this school choice matter dates all the way back to the foundation of liberal thought. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned a whole lot and gave me a lot more hope about the direction that education is headed in the United States of America. And I'm sure you're going to learn a thing or two yourself. So without further ado, here is Jason Bedrick. Do you consider yourself a political being? I mean, put it this way. I, I was uh, elected to office uh, and I work for a, a think tank that's engaged in public policy, but I'm I'm much more interested in the policy side of things than the, strictly speaking, political side of things in the sense of, uh, so political, I'm interested in politics in the, in the sense of uh, crafting policies that are good for the polis, uh, less so in... Uh, you know, day-to-day partisan warfare, R versus D type stuff. Yeah. And so where did you get your start in policymaking or starting to understand the, uh, this is the, the sausage making, right? Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I have a master's in public policy. Uh, I first got interested in public policy when I was in uh, college I had uh, planned to go into the family business and then 9-11 happened like a few weeks into my freshman year. And that got me really interested in public policy, first foreign policy, then domestic policy. Um, Ran for office while I was still in college, did not win, came back two years later and won at age 23, served in the New Hampshire legislature for one term. And then uh, since then, I've been mostly in think tank worlds at the state level and then the federal level. Well, I should say state and then national. I I only focus on on state level K-12 education policy. Um, You said national versus federal. So you're doing individual states or like helping to... Right. So I work nationally. I work all across the country at the state level. I don't do much work with Congress. Okay. Um, how did you enjoy your time in the legislature? Was that great? It was, uh, it was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, most of the work is not the stuff that makes it to TV where it's 
you know, Republicans and Democrats screaming at each other. Uh, most of the work is, you know, things you'd never heard of or considered before and constituents are coming in and, uh, you know, people are raising good points on both sides and you're trying to, as a committee, you know, which is Republican and Democrat, figure out how best to adjudicate these various issues. And there was lots of room for compromise and working across the aisle. Uh, but what makes the news is only when, you know, it's a really hot button issue and you're screaming at each other. Do you consider America as not bipolar or polarized as uh, the narrative would have it, the media narrative? Or do you see from your point of view as a policymaker working with various states that the contention is real now? Yeah, I think most Americans who are not extremely online and are not, you know, tuning in daily to, uh, you know, cable news or, or talk radio are much more toward the center. Um, but what gets clicks and eyeballs is pandering to one base or the other. And so uh, those there's a tendency to highlight the conflict as opposed to try to resolve the conflict. I worry that that the long-term ramifications of that is that it's going to continue to widen the gap between the two sides um, and and that ordinary Americans are, are sort of going to get swept up in this. Um, but I am hopeful, if not optimistic, that that there's, you know, that we'll pull back from that. A cooler heads will prevail. That's what you're, uh, you're Ideally. Thinking. Yeah. Okay. And so speaking politically, where is your position on that great little chart that we have that's uh, so rich and two-dimensional? Oh, the, are you talking about the Nolan chart? Well, I was thinking of like the left, the right, but if you want to get more uh, in-depth than that, I'm fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am more conservative. I consider myself a classical liberal. Uh, so I guess on the, uh, you know, if, if the one dimensional right left spectrum, uh, that puts me more on the right. Um, but if you're using the Nolan chart, um, you know, then on the authoritarian libertarian spectrum, I'm more on the libertarian side and on the, um, uh, the other dimension, which is more on economic ed, I would also be more, more on the libertarian side. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in crafting policy, so how does it work for you and, and your team? You guys kind of come up with policy and then you kind of bring the policy to different uh, groups. We can just talk about one policy, which is one of your main ones, which is the K through 12 education system. Sure. And, and even in K-12, I, I focus um, primarily on school choice. So uh, the idea that the money should fall the child to the learning environment of the family's choice. Um, and, and the question is, how do, what do I do on that? How do I, yeah, I just want like the, like the there's a cartoon about how a bill is made. Like, is there a cartoon version of how the lobbying happens? Like, just so I can get like a better understanding from your professional point of view of how. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's multiple dimensions. So, um, you know, part of it is the research, you know, how do these, you know, once you get some of these policies implemented in certain places, uh, looking at what the effects are and then 
writing reports. And then, you know, from those reports, you generate op-eds, uh, you go on radio and television and podcasts and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, try to get this idea out into the, out into the ether. Um, but also specifically to bring these ideas to policymakers who are considering uh, not just the idea in general, but very specific pieces of legislation. Um, and, you know, so just last week, for example, I was in Texas testifying before uh, the Senate Education Committee talking about the Senate Bill 8, which would create an education savings account program, uh, not to be confused with college savings accounts. This would be uh, taking a portion of the state's per pupil funding. So not the local funding, not the federal funding, but just the state level per pupil funding and putting it into a private bank account that families could access to pay for um, things like private school tuition, tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and more. Uh, so really empowering families with the freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education uh, and choose the learning environment that they think best meets their child's needs. Uh, so, you know, you're going to go before the committee. The committee is going to have uh, various questions about whatever it is that you're saying and about the proposal. And then as, you know, the, a policy expert, you know, you're there to uh, provide information based on your, you know, many years of studying this topic. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of what, what my role is. Mm -hmm. So with just with the school choice issue, it's got a history to it. I remember when I was uh, in school uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, maybe probably the early 90s was when I first heard about it. I think there's been murmurs mm -hmm. about it for quite some time. So it's got some history. It seems like the ball is kind of rolling a little bit more now than it has been ever before. Is that true? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Uh, you know, so school choice, uh, some people trace it back to Milton Friedman. He didn't originate the idea, but he first in the modern era popularized it in uh, a 1955 essay on the role of government in education. Uh, but you could trace it all the way back. I mean, in, in um, uh, Common Sense uh, by Thomas Paine, he actually proposes essentially a, a voucher style program where he didn't think the government should be directly providing an education, but that there was a role for subsidizing it, at least for the poor. Uh, likewise, in uh, On Liberty, so that was like, what, late 1700s. Uh, John Stuart Mill in the mid 1800s in his book On Liberty proposes essentially a voucher style program. Uh, and for similar reasons, he had a deep skepticism of the state providing in education. Uh, he thought that's something that should be left to families in a free society, uh, but also recognized that that not every family would be able to afford uh, a high quality education and that there's a role for subsidy, uh, especially in you know, a democratic society. Uh, Self-governance essentially assumes a populace that has some minimum level of of literacy uh, both you know actual literacy but also literacy in, in civics uh, milton friedman uh you know by the time milton friedman's writing you've got a system of public schools uh which you didn't have in in the days of uh, uh thomas Paine or john stuart mill uh, 
And Friedman's insight was, well, you know, let's assume that there is a strong case for subsidizing education. It doesn't follow that the government should be the one actually providing the education, right? It doesn't have to be running the schools. You could have, uh, and actually in his argument, you should have a, a voucher, which is that instead of the government running the schools, the government would give a coupon to families that they could then go redeem at a private school, whichever one works best for them, and that this system would be more in line with uh, you know, our nation's commitment to liberty and to pluralism, uh, and also that it would um, lead to more effective schools, that whenever you have a monopoly, you've got all sorts of uh, problems with quality, but that if you had a system of competition and families could choose the school that worked best for them, uh, that would create an incentive uh, for higher performing schools to expand. Uh, it would also put lower performing schools out of business over time, and you would have this sort of organic uh, improvement in the system over time. So that was uh, Friedman's idea. Um, it lied dormant for a long time. I mean, there's some, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about a, a national tax credit. Uh, there were a few proposals. It really didn't um, start to be implemented until the 1990s. I, I should say in the mid 1800s, there were a few states like uh, Vermont and Maine that had some form of school choice program called the town tuitioning program. But in the modern era, the 1990s really kicks off in Wisconsin uh, with a bill that was, it was a bipartisan bill. It was sponsored by Polly Williams, uh, who was an African-American Democrat uh, from the inner city. And she was proposing uh, a voucher program for low-income families living in Milwaukee. Uh, and it was signed into law uh, and, and supported by uh, a Republican governor, Tommy Thompson. And so this bipartisan effort launches the first voucher program. Uh, then you had um, Ohio create a similar program uh, for um, which say for Cleveland and then for Racine. And, 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 and then it starts to spread uh, from there. Um, but for the most part, through the 90s, early 2000s and, and 2010s, most of the states that enacted a school choice program, it's either for low income families or students with special needs, or there's some other you know kids that are assigned to a low performing school district, and there's caps on how many kids can participate. With COVID, though, there's a real change. Yeah. Okay. So all of a sudden, um, this you know entire school system is shut down. Uh, and then families are ready to get back. You know, families are very forgiving, I would say, in the spring of 2020. But they expected schools to have their act together by the fall. And when the fall comes and a lot of school districts still have not opened up, families are starting to get very upset. Uh, by that point, it was pretty clear that um, children were not at high risk unless they were immunocompromised. Uh, they were watching as private schools, especially the, you know, the Catholic school system, they reopened successfully. You didn't see, you know, these mass outbreaks at Catholic schools or Catholic school teachers dropping like flies or anything like that. So families are saying, okay, well, let's, let's get 
you know, back to school. And a lot of the school systems just were not reopening. Uh, and in some cases, you know, you had the unions that were very clearly playing politics. They were saying, well, we can't reopen until we get our list of demands met. And, you know, maybe some of the demands were, were reasonable, um, but, you know, then they're, they're asking for, you know, in, increases in their salary and benefits and all sorts of stuff that's sort of like tucked into these packages that they're asking for. And parents felt like their children are being held captive um, you know, for special interests in the system. So it really broke the bonds of trust that families had in their local school system. Uh, and then even when schools reopen, now parents are paying much more attention. They'd also gotten a taste of what was going on in the classroom through Zoom school. A lot of families did not like what they saw, whether it was the low quality of the instruction or especially the politicization of the classroom. And so now they're paying much closer attention and uh, they're also finding things that they don't like, whether it's, you know, certain policies that they don't like or, uh, you know, books that are uh, really sexually explicit, uh, you know, very graphic. I don't know if you've uh, had a guest on the program talking about the you know, one book in particular called Gender Queer that was really upsetting families because it has, uh, you know, it's a graphic novel. And uh, the author um, even said that this was not intended for children, but it's now in all these public school libraries. And it has scenes where there's, you know, oral sex between uh, between minors. And so family, and, and, you know, and very clear depictions, families are very upset by this. And then there's they're trying to get these out. Um, and a lot of times they're running into resistance from the school board and they're realizing that the school board was much more ideological than the median family. Uh, so families started to turn to state legislators and to governors asking them for relief. Uh, and also asking specifically, not judges to address, you know, can you stop our school from doing this or force the school to reopen or whatnot. Um, they were asking for school choice. And, and so what we've seen in the last two years uh, has been first West Virginia, then Arizona um, enact education. Arizona enacted an education savings account a decade ago, but it was only for students with special needs. Then they expanded it a number of times. Uh, last year, they expanded it to every single child in the state. Um, West Virginia created a new ESA in 2021, also for every child in the state. Uh, and this year, four states so far, uh, that would be Iowa, Utah, Arkansas, and now Florida, have either created new ESA or ESA-like programs or uh, have expanded existing ones to every child in the state. So you know, two years ago, you didn't have a single state that had a publicly funded uh, universal school choice program. Now you have six and there are several other states that are considering one, um, most notably, as I mentioned earlier, Texas. Uh, if Texas does enact uh, a universal ESA program this year, then about one in four kids in the country would have access to an education savings account. So really just an incredibly rapid change in the last right. two years. So just for um, context, a little bit more context, generally speaking, how, what percentage of funding comes from the state versus the federal versus the local? Uh, just like That's a great question. Uh, it varies considerably state to state. Uh, and, you know, most states were talking about 
eight to ten percent comes from the federal government. Okay. Um, and a, a lot of that is for you know low income kids or kids with special needs and, and things like that. Um, Transportation and infrastructure too, I'm sure. Some of that, and also school lunches and and, and those sorts of things, uh, the school breakfast program. Uh, then, so that of the remaining ninety percent. Um, it varies from state to state. In some states, it's about two-third, one-third um, state-local. In other states, it's the reverse. In some, it's closer to 50-50. So it, it really does depend. And um, this is a little too fine-grained, but I'm just curious now. The local uh, funding is probably more from property taxes, generally speaking, and then the state level would be from the income tax, however the state gets their money. Um Local does tend to come from property taxes. Uh, state funding really varies from state to state. Okay. In some, it's income. Some states don't have an income tax, and so it's a state property tax, uh, or it's a sales tax, uh, or uh, the lottery. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of different um, revenue sources, and it it varies considerably by each. Usually, people too that the funding formula in each state is so complex. There's usually only a handful of people that actually understand it. <laughs> That's kind of dangerous if nobody can understand the funding, but we'll see how our economy shakes out on that front, you know, but yeah, right. Um, So, so what you're telling, thanks for that uh, great overview, because it sounds like school choice and, and broadly speaking is a core liberal idea. It's kind of been around since the birth of liberalism. Uh, And, and that makes sense because liberalism, democracy, uh, free rational uh, agents, uh, conceiving of, of the population as a bunch of rational agents making rational decisions is based on educated, rational uh, agents. So, of course, you would think, well, how do we educate people in order to make a sustaining democracy rather than it just collapsing upon itself into whatever horrors human beings can do uh, when they're just let loose like that? Um, but when when you were talking about it being implemented in the 90s up to uh, pre-pandemic, it sounds like school choice was... It was, um, it was a very specific tool for specific problems. Urban environments, low uh, low income, and special education. So the data set that those programs produced is, I guess we have a couple decades of data on that, but it'll be fundamentally different than the data that's going to be produced by this statewide. So we don't really, is it fair to, to suppose that we don't really know how this is going to work out yet? It's still kind of in an experimental phase, uh, the, this new post-COVID uh, yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that's a fair statement. Um, to back up just a bit, there's always been a variety of different um, groups within the school choice movement, uh, which itself is just a part of the broader sort of education reform movement. Uh, so you had more libertarians and you had equalitarians, right? You had people like Milton Friedman who were arguing for uh, you know, universal school choice in, in programs that had a very light regulatory touch. Uh, and then you had those at the other end of the spectrum who said, yeah, we should have choices, but it should be, we should be focusing only on, you know, the most disadvantaged and we need to have lots of regulations in place to ensure quality and, and access and, and those sorts of things. And so, um, another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, you know, even among the those who thought it should be universal, there were a lot of those who who you know were incrementalists who said, okay, well let's we'll we'll take this a step at a time, and you know let's um, you know we'll prioritize those who are most in need, but with the ultimate goal of expanding to everyone. Then you had those who said, well, no, we only want to go here and no further because if it's open to everyone, then um, you know the this, the disadvantaged are not going to have um, you know a leg up. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so you, don't, so you of, don't get a positive feedback or you might get a negative feedback of people with a low starting point maintain right. a low quality yeah. yeah and then those on the other side you know so on the more the the freedmanite side would say well you know if if we're only focusing on the low income uh you know what you're going to do is you're going to fill existing seats but you're not going to have that sort of systemic transformation as if you you know open it up to everybody um you know, so uh, arguments on both sides, and I would say that the the equalitarian form of school choice, um, practically speaking, had been winning out for you know through the '90s and into the early 2000s. Um, but the the more Friedmanite version of school choice is is having its uh, day in the sun today. Uh, yes, almost all of the research is of smaller programs most of which were for you know low-income families or middle and low and middle-income families uh so these new programs that are for everybody we don't have data yet on how they perform uh so you know time will tell i guess to some extent the the, the only suggestive data we have it's not a study it's observational so you have to be very careful making um causal conclusions arizona has had a universal tax credit scholarship program okay so the way a tax credit scholarship program works is that uh anybody any taxpayer whether they're an individual or a corporation uh, and whether you know if they're an individual whether they have children or not they make a contribution to a scholarship organization and then they can get a dollar for dollar tax credit um, there's about 20 states that have a program like this now. It's not dollar for dollar in every state, but it is in several of them, like in Florida, Arizona, Georgia, Montana, et cetera. Um, hmm. Then families can apply to the scholarship organizations and receive funding. So in Arizona, there's extra funding for low-income families and for families, uh, for children who have special needs, but anybody can apply for a scholarship. So they've had universal school choice since the late 90s. So if you want to look anywhere, I, I would say look at Arizona for, you know, what a robust education choice policy could, could be. Uh, and there were lots of predictions. Oh, this is going to destroy public education. Uh, you know, what's going to happen is 
you know, the, the families that are most interested in education are going to pull their kids out. Right. Um, and that's going to, that's, that means that the best students on average are going to leave. Now, already it's interesting that you know, families who really care about education, the assumption is, of course, they're going to rip their kids out of the public school system. So, well, why is that? But we'll put a pin in that. Okay. Let's assume that's true. They're going to rip their kids out. Now, the public school system has um, harder to teach kids on average and less money to teach them. And that's going to lead to a deterioration in the quality. And as quality deteriorates, then of the remainder, those families that are more interested in education yeah. are going to leave. You'll have a school run like a bank run. Yeah. Or a student run. Yeah. Those who are left are going to be the harder to teach kids, even less money and more deterioration. It just leads to a death spiral that destroys education. So destroys public education. So if that was going to happen anywhere, Arizona should be ground zero, right? They've had these programs since the late nineties, uh, universal, uh, Arizona also had a, um, it's probably the easiest place to uh, open up charter schools. Arizona has a higher um, charter school use per capita than than almost any other state. Uh, about 20% of kids in the state are in charter schools. Uh, Could, plus, Arizona has an inter-district choice policy, and in close to 30% of kids in, in Maricopa County, which is the majority of the state, um, are participating. So if you add all these programs up, the ESA, the tax credit scholarship, the um, inter-district choice, charter schools, more than half the, of the kids in the state are attending a learning or, or in a learning environment, which is not necessarily a school. Uh, They're in a learning environment other than their assigned district school. So we should see the collapse of the school system, right? No, actually the reverse. Not only have Arizona's public schools not fallen apart, um, but they have been the fastest improving over the last two decades uh, of any state in the nation. Uh, Arizona used to be pretty close to the bottom. Uh, Arizona is now basically just above average. They're in the middle, but they're just above average. So they've had a lot of improvement. And if you isolate the most competitive system, which is the, the charter school system, Arizona's charter schools are performing at the level, uh, and this is on the National Assessment of Education Progress, I should be clear, the NAEP, which is also known as the, the nation's report card. Arizona's charter system is is performing like the top states in the nation, like um, you know uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. uh, the only difference is that it's spending about half as much per pupil as, as those other states, and it has a majority-minority population. Uh, majority of children in the system are uh, Hispanic or African-American, mostly Hispanic. So uh, Arizona, I think really, uh, if you want to see what school choice is going to look like in these other states, Arizona is, is uh, where I would point you. Okay. So um, I'm just going to riff on that data. I'm, I'm, a sure. to I'm totally illiterate. But So I, help me be less illiterate. Can you define a charter school? It's not where people go to make maps, right? I've heard that word uh, for so long, but I yes, never actually good. asked. Yeah. So a charter school is essentially, it's a public-private partnership. So these are essentially privately run uh, public schools. So they have to be open to everybody. Uh, if they have oversubscription, they have to have a lottery. Uh, they are directly publicly funded. They do not charge tuition. Um, 
There is some debate right now. Right now, all the charter schools in the country have to be secular. There is some debate over whether recent Supreme Court decisions um, would permit or perhaps even require uh, the state to allow religious charter schools. Uh, But at least for the time being, all of them have to be secular. Uh, So they are essentially like like public schools in all those regards. But uh, instead of being run by, you know, uh, having an elected school board and, you know, being, um, you know, the the official body for a particular town or, uh, or, you know, other government entity, they are run by some private, usually nonprofit organization. Okay. So the superintendent would be a public servant or uh, no, so they wouldn't, they usually don't have a superintendent. Uh, okay. They either are an independent charter school, or like in Arizona, there are some charter school chains like Basis Charter Schools or okay. um, Great Hearts Charter Schools that that are a chain, but they don't have a superintendent. Okay. Um, you know, like like the public school system one. And every every time that I've heard about a charter school, I, I live. I've lived in Portland, Oregon, and I'm still connected to that place. It sounds like the charter schools have more flavor, more direction. They have like an art school, a music school, like kind of a sciencey school. So they, they, they're more honed in, perhaps, than a public school is more generic. They, they can be. Uh, they don't have to be, but they often are. Yeah, they do. Um, because you know they're they're usually fulfilling some sort of niche. So yes, you've got you know some of them are Montessori, some of them are classical or great books, um, some of them do focus on drama and the arts, others are focusing on STEM. Um, there's one out here, Basis, that I mentioned, which uh, was founded by two economists, and all of the students take economics and lots of uh, you know AP advanced placement classes. So yeah, they do have different flavors um uh so i mean and that's what you would expect you know if you have a market uh families have lots of different preferences uh children also have different aspirations and aptitudes and um a child who might not do well in one classroom environment would be thriving in a different classroom environment and so uh giving families a, a much not just the, you know your choice of any mcdonald's in the town right uh but but a, a wide variety of of different options is i think in the best interest of children and do they ever edge into trade school like like a like mechanics oriented or i don't know like yeah they can they can and and, uh, and some do um and, and also you know among private schools i know of uh, some that are doing that sort of thing there's a What's it called? There's a cat. There's a chain of Catholic schools called Cristo Rey that um, partners with local businesses, and all of the students, um, you know, concurrent with their studies, are spending time doing internships or apprenticeships. Um, you know, they they especially focus on low income areas. So these are kids who otherwise, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a high number of them would uh, otherwise be dropping out. Uh, of, of high school, or even if they, they get through high school, would be unlikely to go to college and, um, you know, uh, are are more likely than the the national average to end up in prison or, or, or you know, addicted to drugs, these sorts of things. So they focus on um, getting these kids connected uh, to the business community, both A, because uh, it, it's showing them, hey, you have a path where you can yeah. make an honest living and provide for yourself and for your family. Um, 
uh, and here are the skills that you need to acquire in order to do it, but B, that the students are actually making connections, not just acquiring the skills in a classroom environment, they're going out into the world and they're making connections and, you know, with potential future employers. Uh, so yeah. yeah, there's all sorts, you know, of, uh, really interesting, innovative things that private schools and charter schools are, are doing. That a free so, market would give rise to. Uh, yes. So go, going back to uh, what you're talking about with Arizona as a whole, with how the uh, public schools went up to a robust average, and then the charter schools went up to top, top tier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering why that is, and if it could be the case that teachers, public school teachers go to uh, Arizona somehow facilitates a better environment for better teachers and a different, a different attitude towards education across the entire populace, maybe by giving little vents or um, different pathways to different people. It relieves the pressure of the public school system to serve everybody under one universal model, which just doesn't fit everybody. And because it's more diversified, everybody's uh, benefits in, in all yeah. these different ways. I can just see just off the top of my head, all these different ways that it's much more, it's just a better place all around for everybody. Yeah. And I can't speak to, you know, what any particular school is, is doing. What I can say is that, um, look, Milton Friedman said of the, um, of the free market system, that it's a system of profit and loss and the loss is important. Uh, mm. okay. It's, right? it's information, it, right? It's, it's information, information. Yeah. right? It's all a feedback loop, right? So when you have, um, just you have one choice uh you know your your money is taken from you and put into one system and you can opt out on your own dime um but otherwise you've got this free uh at least at the point of um entry system of of public schooling you essentially have a captive audience especially for lower income families and you don't have that that feedback mechanism what arizona has done with universal school choice is create that feedback mechanism uh, and you know, people are using it uh and and when when you've got a school system where a lot of people are leaving well that school system now has to figure out what to do they have to like reach out to families and say hey why are you leaving what could we do better uh so it's interesting, you know, I've seen schools around here that all of a sudden start advertising, you know, we have core knowledge. Well, why are they doing that? Well, because, um, you know, core knowledge is a curriculum that that is associated with, um, oh, of course, I'm drawing a blank on his name now. Um, Rasputin? Ah, no, no, no. Uh, you know, he was, uh, oh, man, what is his name? Cool I, I know Robert Pondicio. Robert Pondicio is going to be very upset with me from, uh, from the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute that I forget is the former boss's name, who came up with this. Um, this, but basically, it's a core curriculum, and you know, and uh, what he thought everybody should know, right? And so it's it's caught on. A lot of families like this uh, this core knowledge curriculum, and when some charter schools started to have it, and families were flocking to it, and the public schools were saying, "Whoa, what's going on? Oh, well, you, you want that thing over there? Okay, we're going to start offering that thing that you want." Uh, you also see. Uh, uh, public schools that are advertising that they are a rated public schools. Now, some people are like, well, wait a second, you know, the, uh, advertising that seems wasteful. Well, no, not really, because what, what advertising is doing is, as long as it's truthful, is that it is giving families information. Right. I didn't know that my local school was A rated or I didn't know that I was uh, going to a B or a C or D or F rated school, but that there's an A rated school down the street. I should take my child out of here and I should go over there. 
Um, those sorts of incentives are going to lead organically over time to improvement in the system. Uh, it's not going to lead overnight to, you know, miraculous improvement, yeah. um, but it is going to give you that feedback loop that over time is going to lead to higher quality and a greater diversity of options. And that's certainly what we've seen here in Arizona. Okay. So some of the pushback from, I would say, the the right or the dissident, even classical liberals uh, against mm -hmm. school choice. And I don't know this topic thoroughly, but I kind of sure. have spoken with people about it, is that this school choice is not um, like a... a an escape hatch from an ideological capture of the school system, right? It's because the, there's still feedback mechanisms like in accreditation in funding and then in ratings where regulation can occur on an ideological, uh, access, right? So you can still have, and I'm sorry to go here, this entire word, I don't yeah. know if you want to talk about the W word, but you can still have wokeness, uh, operating because the teachers still have to go to woke colleges and colleges are becoming increasingly woke and colleges of education mm -hmm. are point uh, you know, ground zero of that. Um, so yeah. there's still, it's not like uh, all of a sudden the ideology, a secular school system is not a non-ideological school system as we're rapidly finding out. So yes, what are some of the kind of the, the positives of that or the, the pushback to that criticism or at least that, that skepticism of SEL, ESG, all these other kind of government programs that are looking to capitalize on this. Sure. And I should note it was Edie Hirsch who uh, came up with, with core knowledge. But okay. um, yeah, I, I would say that there's different versions of the, um, you called it the dissident right critique of school choice. Um, so one is that school choice is going to contribute to the problem because, you know, with government shekels come government shackles. Hmm. Uh, then the other is that, uh, you know, they're not making the case that it's going to contribute, but it's not going to solve the problem. And at the very least, it's, it's sort of a distraction to, to, to this problem. Okay. Uh, a few things on, on that. Uh, first of all, all of the the recent uh, school choice programs that have been enacted, uh, especially the ones in the last few years that have been, you know, sort of the, the, the more Milton Friedman style ones, all of them have built into the statute very strong language talking about how um, this uh, this does not make um, schools that the, the funds are going to families. And then the families are choosing the school. The schools are not becoming government entities or government contractors. Um, they're not fulfilling any duties on behalf of the government and that the uh, programs are not extending uh, regulatory authority over these private entities. So there's a lot of language uh, oh, that okay. that is intended to preserve the autonomy of homeschoolers and private schools. Um, and that's very, very important. Um, and, and by the way, you know, if, if there were a state that were to say, you know, we're going to require that you teach the state tests or the t state curriculum or anything like that, um, my organization, the Heritage, uh, the Heritage Foundation uh, and a number of other uh, organizations that are more on the right uh, would come out against those policies. Right. Uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance and yeah. we obviously do have to be vigilant eternal Zoom is, meetings and to bring yeah. it up to 2020 <laughs> yes there you go 
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, the other thing is, if you look at Take, let's say, uh, HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, has a map um, where they show you which states respect the autonomy of homeschoolers and which states are trying to micromanage homeschoolers. Then you take a map of which states have like the most robust school choice policies and which states don't have any. Uh, and the maps are, are, you know, there's a ton of overlap between these maps, right? So states like Arizona really have a robust school choice environment and respect um, homeschoolers. And states like New York lack any school choice, and they have a lot of regulations on private schools and homeschools, right? So it, it's there's actually not this one-to-one relationship. Um, actually, it seems that, that there's almost an inverse relationship. If you have more people invested in private education, you're going to have a greater constituency to protect private education if the government ever comes and tries to regulate it. So first, the government doesn't need to be giving you shekels to give you shackles, right? The government does not have to be front funding private education in order to regulate private education. And they're, they're, they're regulating private education to a greater extent in states without school choice than states with school choice. Um, but secondly, if you want to defend the autonomy of the private school system and of homeschooling, you want more people invested in that system. And that's what school choice gets you. So I, I you know, I hear the critique and obviously we always, I'm not going to say, Hey, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. I'm saying, yeah, no worry about the government. Definitely worry about the government, but it's not school choice. That's the camel's nose under the tent. Um, it's actually the reverse. Hmm. But what about, accreditation um is it are or i i can't conceive of a state saying here's the money we're not going to watch what you do with it we there's got to be some sort of standards being met and somebody's going to measure those standards uh, in a certain way uh not necessarily no really? um you know so like in, in arizona you're entering into a contract in the, with the state that says i'm going to use this money to provide my child with an education in these basic subjects you know so english language arts math, you know, uh, history, science, uh, but the state does not define, you know, which concepts within each of those subjects that you have to learn. Um, the state is making sure that, you know, you're only spending the funds on um, particular categories of expenditures, right? So it has to be on uh, private school tuition, tutoring, uh, homeschool curriculum materials, right? Things like this. But they are not 
saying, you know, here are the following uh, curriculums that we approve and we don't approve these other ones or anything. Like that. No, they, they are not. It's a very hands-off approach right now. And, and we think that's appropriate. Um, the financial accountability should be to the state. The state should be making sure, look, you, you can't be spending this on, um, you know, you can't take it to Caesar's Palace. Uh, you can't spend this on, you know, uh, a, a big screen TV or a car it has to be on these certain things. Uh, but are certain categories of things that are clearly educational, but within those categories, it, it is not appropriate for the government to be deciding what's high quality, what's low quality or anything like that. That should be decided by the families. And so you want a system that is mm. moving the locus of control away from government entities and toward families. Okay. And in aggregate, those systems, the bet is that the systems that don't have government or excessive government regulation will actually provide a higher standard of education because the natural will of the people is to perform high. Uh, the natural desire of the human beings in the state is to be good humans in the state. Yes. It's not the, and, jobs, and there's, uh, the, the government's job to make that happen. Cor correct. And look, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. Um, but, you know, when an individual family makes poor decisions, that's really unfortunate, especially for those children. But when an entire state or a, you know, a large school system makes bad decisions, you know, like, like states that um, switched from phonics to whole language, every child in that system was harmed greatly their their ability to uh read and comprehend the english language was um perhaps irreversibly damaged by a a system that uh that taught them that way so it's the the danger is much greater that um that bureaucrats are going to make decisions like that that are not in the best interest of children than that parents are parents are closer to the ground they love their children most they have the most local knowledge about what's in their, their child's interest. So it's less likely that the parents are going to make these sorts of, of bad decisions. And also when they do, it's going to be much more localized. And so, uh, you know, there's always going to be um, failures. And that's that's just the nature of the human condition. But um, the I think there's a much greater danger when you've got 90% of kids in one particular type of system. Uh, you know, and, and especially as we're seeing, I mean, Thomas Paine and John Stuart Mill were really prescient in the concern about um, uh, the government running the schools and how there could be ideological capture. Uh, and that's what we see across the system. Uh, again, those in the dissident right, I, I hear their concerns, especially they're concerned about woke education. Um, but it's the government school system that requires you to go get, uh, you know, very often either requires you to get an education degree or it creates an incentive to get an education degree by paying you more if you do so. Um, that is not a requirement in the private system, right? Hmm. You can you can be a teacher at private schools without having gone through that system. And in, in fact, a lot of the private schools and charter schools that I know are looking for people who specifically didn't go through the um that system that they are alternatively certified uh or not certified and who have subject matter expertise but not um you know a degree in education because 
frankly, the education degrees are, are fairly worthless. Uh, there's no evidence that people that have education degrees or who have master's degrees even uh, are better teachers on average than those who don't. Um, but we pay people more for it. So yeah, I, I want to create as many alternatives to that system uh, as possible. Uh, so you're saying that the school choice program is actually taking care of the problem of accreditation or the, the ideological capture that has been uh, captured? Yes, yes, over time. And I would like to see, you know, let's have more accreditors. Accreditation itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It's that a number of the approved accreditors have been ideologically captured. And so having more accreditors that are not ideologically captured is a good thing. Uh, just like the, you know, some of the tests seem to be going, uh, you know, the, the, the school board, uh, rather college board, which is, uh, which runs the uh, AP tests um, and the SAT, um, they seem to be ideologically captured, but we have alternatives. There's something called the CLT now, the classic learning test, um, which which a lot of classical schools around the country are using and which very much is uh, uh, non-woke based, you might even say. <laughs> um, I don't know how to formulate this question, but unions then in, in a school choice system like in Arizona, how do unions, teachers unions operate? I guess that's that's uh, that 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 system's disrupted too. Very much so. I mean, there are very, very, very few private schools nationally or charter schools for that matter that are unionized. More charter than private, um, but the the unions have not had a great deal of success in unionizing outside of like very blue areas. They've not had success in unionizing charter schools and certainly not private schools. So, so the teachers themselves are opting to work in non-union labor. They're like, actually, I'd rather oh. work over here than through a union. Absolutely. I've, I've talked to a lot of teachers who do not like their unions. They, they, they are, you know, first of all, they don't like that so much of the uh, union funding is going toward politicking. <laughs> the Democrats. And, and a, <laughs> right. And, and on a wide variety of issues that have absolutely nothing to do with what goes on in the classroom. Right. Um, but, but even aside from that, you know, th they don't like a lot of these rules that just say, okay, we're going to pay you more because you breathed for an additional year, uh, as opposed to, well, you know, if you are, um, you know, if you can demonstrate that you're a higher quality instructor, if you're willing to take on a heavier class load and teach more students, if you're more involved with extracurricular activities with the kids, like we're going to compensate you for all of these things. Uh, you know, those sorts of teachers don't want a union system that says, no, 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 we're actually going to restrict. So you can't teach more than, you know, four periods of day and you have to have uh, certain breaks and, and, you know, like they, they don't like these, these sorts of, of rules. So, hmm. um, you know, if you have a system that is not unionized, uh, you can actually attract a very different type of teacher than uh, a unionized system. And with regard to Arizona, which is sounds like the most robust data set that you have at this point, how has the um, like the low income and the uh, marginalized uh, demographics uh, benefited or suffered? How how has the school choice system affected them? Yeah, no, actually, um, Matt Ladner, uh, who is a uh, what is he? You know, he's a policy analyst at the Arizona Charter Schools Association now. He's done a lot of great work on that, showing that the greatest gains 
uh, among Arizona students have been among that lowest income demographic, which which makes the most sense because it's that demographic that is the most choice deprived under the um, you know geographically assigned system. Higher income families can either pay for private school tuition or they can pay for a house that is in a higher performing district, whereas lower income families can usually uh, can't do either. Uh, so they're the most choice deprived. So moving to a system of choice, they're going to be the ones that are going to have the greatest gains. And so that that's exactly what we've seen. Uh, we've also seen from Florida. Um, so I forget which university out there. It's I think it's Florida State University. But there's a certain university out there that does a longitudinal study every year. They're looking at, you know, an additional data set of, um, you know, students who are participating in the uh, tax credit scholarship program. And I had talked earlier about the opponent's fear that you're going to have this death spiral and that the best and brightest kids are going to leave. What they found in Florida is actually exactly the opposite. Okay, it is not the highest performing students who leave. It is lower performing students on average who leave. Okay, so think of it this way. Your child is going to your geographically assigned school. Okay, and they seem to be doing fine. Right. They're doing well on tests. They're getting good grades. What is your incentive to leave the school? And, you know, when you leave the school, your child leaves behind all their friends. You probably have connections with other parents in the school system, right? There's a lot invested in the school system. You don't just change schools willy-nilly, right? So actually, family kids that are doing well in the existing system tend to stay. It's the ones who are not doing well where the parents are like, this just isn't working. Like, it's worth the cost to move our kid out of the system. And I'm not talking about the the monetary cost. I mean, like the cost of ripping our child away from their friends and all that kind of stuff. Uh, So what they found in this longitudinal study is that the students who are entering the scholarship program for the first time are scoring below the average of their demographic peers. But that within a few years, they're performing at the national average um, which, because it's it's mostly low-income kids in the program, they're outperforming their demographic peers after just a few years in the program. So that leads to you know increased quality in the entire system. I mean, even if the public school system did nothing else, if there were no competitive effects, by taking away their lower-performing test scores, their test scores are going to get go up on average. Yeah. And there tends to be peer effects, too. So if you're taking kids that aren't performing as well, who might be more disruptive because that environment is not a good fit for them, out of the classroom, that's also going to have a positive effect on their test scores. But now you're putting these kids – it's not that you're taking the quote-unquote dumb kids out. You're just taking kids out of an environment that's not a good fit for them. Yeah. Now you're putting them into an environment that's a better fit. All of a sudden, their test scores go up, too. So it's actually better for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So where is the, like the cutting edge of your work right now? Like what, what, what's the, I guess Florida is the latest big win. Florida yesterday, governor DeSantis signed uh, a bill expanding the existing education savings account to every child in the state. Um, You know, so now we've got, you know, Arizona, Florida, four other states. And, um, you know, we're looking at Texas and there's about a dozen other states that are looking at, um, 
some form of you know school choice, either introducing a new policy or expanding an existing one um, this year. I think Ohio might expand their voucher to everyone in the state. Um, and then there's a few other states that, I mean, Alabama, um, Missouri, Tennessee, South Carolina, all that, that, that all have uh, some sort of uh, new ESA or ESA style policy that they're and considering. What's like the general, just like from a bird's eye view, or maybe even a satellite's view, because we're talking about a whole state, what needs to change like in the infrastructure when this um, this tax credit, this savings account goes into effect? Do, do, uh, do the public schools need to, is there a lot of like rewriting of the current system or is it just the acceptance of, these charter schools and just the openness to more yeah so starts um the change should be organic and not prescriptive from the top down right so that's that's fundamentally the idea is that we're changing the funding mechanism and putting the power in the hands of families instead of saying okay this kid we're assigning to this school based on the location of their home and nothing else and then um, we're going to fund this institution and we're just going to assign kids to this institution instead we're saying look the the family is going to make the decision the the, fu the funding goes to the family they get to decide and then what you have is um what's his name Yuval Levin describes it as, as a, a Hayekian system of um experimentation evaluation and evolution right so you're giving the uh education providers the freedom and flexibility to provide an education however they think is best and you're giving families the freedom to choose from among those education providers that's the sort of experimentation then the evaluation is parents then you know the people who um are bearing the consequences of the performance is the families right it's their children mm -hmm. that are either being helped or not helped by this by this particular school they're the ones that do the evaluation not some bureaucrat at the state capitol just looking at text test scores and and you know the test scores i mean test scores are valuable but they're only one part they're like one sliver of the equation and they're not necessarily we treat them like a proxy for everything but they aren't necessarily a proxy for all the important things so the family has a much more holistic approach they're looking at test scores but they're also looking at well what kind of character is my child developing right what kind of person is my child becoming in this institution uh and once they make that evaluation Right. Then they either choose to continue enrolling their child there or to ch send their child somewhere else. There's also the word of mouth effects, right? Families are sharing information about what's going on with their children. And then over time, the entire system evolves in response to the choices of families. Right. And so it's not that the states need to, I mean, this is the key lever of change. And it's not that the states need to say, okay, this is how we think the system should look. Um, no. No, it's not top down. It's it's bottom up. It's the the system is going to change over time in response to the families. Mm -hmm. And and look, that I think is what really addresses the the woke question. Yes, look, people will point now to woke private schools, and there's a lot of them, especially among the feeder schools into the Ivy League, right? So the elite boarding school types tend to be captured by woke ideologues. 
But those those are not the schools that most families are choosing. First of all, they don't represent uh, a majority of schools. They're actually a minority of private schools. Most private schools are more like your your local Catholic school um, or a wide variety of mostly Christian, but but a, a lot of different types of religious schools, a lot of uh, Jewish schools, Muslim schools. Um, so it's it's religious schools. They tend to be much more affordable than the elite schools. Uh, a lot of them are charging tuition that is below the average state spending per pupil. Uh, and they're not woke by and large because families are not woke by and large. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a there's actually a great study by uh, my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Jay Green, who looked at charter school laws and uh, measured them against um, you know a certain measure of wokeness. So what, what he and, and the other people in the study did is they looked at um, uh, school websites and their uh, student handbooks, and they were looking for key like woke buzzwords, you know, diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion, this sorts of these sorts of things. Uh, and they compared it against the charter school laws in the state. So do you have a charter school law that is highly restrictive, top down, and tends to produce only a few charter schools? Or do you have a charter school law that is more bottom up, let a thousand flowers bloom, let's have lots of charter schools, not micromanage them, and, and parents will go where they choose. And what he found was that the more um, family-centered your law, in other words, if you are if your accountability system is we're going to open up a whole bunch of charter schools and we're going to let families choose whichever ones work for them and the families are going to be the accountability me mechanism if they choose away from a school the school closes if they choose a school the school expands what you have is a very non-woke system if you have a top-down system where you've got a few decision makers in the state approving schools like in Alabama, they have only a handful of schools, and one of them is um, a, a like a trans um, charter school. Okay, in in deep red Alabama, why is that? Well, they have a very top down system, and and the left tends to be very good at capturing those sorts of top down systems. So that's what we need. We 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 need to avoid having hmm. a very few gatekeepers because when you have very few gatekeepers, you're going to have a a woker system. You want to have a, a a system where the families are more in control, and then you're not going to have a very woke system. Yeah. Okay. So now in that yeah. in that system, by the way, if everybody gets to choose, some families are still going to choose woke schools, yeah. and and that's I think that's the price of freedom. Uh, if you know for for those who are anti woke uh, and pro freedom. You have to be comfortable with families making decisions about education that differ from your own. Um, so, you know, I know that there are those who are like, well, what we need to do is just like totally ban this, even in the private sector. Uh, first of all, how? Yeah, I don't <laughs> uh, understand and, how you do that. And, and uh, you know, second of all, uh, you know, at, at what price to liberty? Uh, you know, if anything that you can do to them with the government, they can do to you. Uh, I think the the much better option is the founding fathers solution, which is uh, that you have a system of uh, of freedom. And and yeah, and these different like wokeness dilutes. You're diluting it rather than concentrating it, which is a yes. vector of attack that um, is it's non intuitive because they're pushing things down your throat. And so, from a, from a anti woke perspective, you have to fight back. But if you just let them 
kind of be idiots in the public square and then let's let the public square like shake out you'll probably see that they're not as powerful and all commanding as you had feared yeah i think so i had another question just slipped my mind um this is really fascinating stuff so where are you are you where are you concentrating on now like you're you're going uh for texas is that for for you yourself Texas, that, uh, that would be the crown jewel i mean that's the largest red state um and so yeah we would love to see texas next um but i'm working in you know half a dozen other states right now also to advance school choice policy so okay. we'll see and do you do uh so where, where do you put your energies mostly in and kind of communicate you're the communications guy with this stuff do you do a lot of like policy writing or do you like what what's your yeah. So, you know, writing, research, writing, um, and, and communication all, all three together, you know, so for example, uh, uh, my most recent report, uh, is called rustic Renaissance and it's on school choice in, in rural areas, uh, hmm. because there's, uh, there was this idea that, well, okay, you've got all this evidence that shows that school choice, um, benefits the public school system on average, right? 25 out of 28 studies show a statistically significant positive effect on the public school system. Um, but maybe those positive effects are concentrated in urban areas. And we think in rural areas where um, there are very few private options uh, and the schools are so small that if kids start to leave, they're just going to collapse. So maybe it's negative for rural areas. Now, first of all, these two claims, right, that there are no private options in rural areas or very few, uh, and that so many kids are going to leave, um, that the system's going to collapse are, are mutually exclusive, right? Um, they can't both be true at the same time. They can both be false at the same time. And so what I showed in this paper was, A, there's actually a lot more options in rural areas around the country than people think. Um less obviously than in an urban or suburban area, but, but more than people think. Um, and B that if we, and I take the data from Arizona, what we did is isolate the test scores for rural school districts. And what you see over the last decade is that Arizona has some of the fastest improving schools in the nation, uh, that their rural schools, uh, are improving at a much faster rate than rural schools nationwide. Uh, so, again, if if the critics were right, Arizona should be ground zero. You should be having rural schools collapsing all over the place. Uh, in fact, it's not true. They're getting a lot why, better. Why do you think that they're getting better? The rural, rural for the same reason that they are in urban and suburban areas. Uh, that there is more competition, and okay. so you no longer have a school district that uh, it, you know has a captive audience. They are now competing. Uh, you've got the uh, first of all. Uh, online schools. I know online schools have gotten a bad name because of uh, COVID, but it's important to distinguish between, uh, on the one hand, in-person schools that on a dime have to switch to emergency dis distance learning and are trying to do the same thing, but over Zoom. That's not the same thing as an intentionally designed online program. Uh, and the, it, you know, there was a lot of evidence, and I, I showed in the paper that the online programs that were already online pre-COVID were dramatically outperforming the brick and mortar that switched to online. Yeah, makes sense. Um, now, uh, so there's, you know, that's an option in rural areas. You also have the rise of hybrid homeschooling and microschooling. Uh, 
So hybrid homeschooling, you know, maybe I, I live in an area where the uh, the nearest private school is just too far away for for my family to be driving there twice a day to drop the kids off and pick them up. Yeah. Um, but maybe two or three times a week would be doable, right? Especially if I'm carpooling. So these families are doing part of the week homeschooling and part of the week in person. Uh, then you also have microschooling. So these are schools that are, uh, you know, it's not homeschooling, um, but it's, you know, usually between five and 15 kids uh, in sort of a, you know, one room schoolhouse. Sometimes it's in a family's garage or living room. Uh, sometimes it's in a church basement. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things that, that, that these families are, are doing. Uh, sometimes they're doing it on their own. Sometimes, you know, more like a, what, what we're called uh, learning pods or pandemic pods. Uh, yeah. But most of what are called micro schools tend to be a part of a chain. So they're, you're, you know, they're affiliated. Like here in Arizona, there's a group called Prenda Microschools. Um, it started before the pandemic, uh, 2018. I think they had about seven kids. And then before the pandemic started, they had more than a thousand and more than a uh, hundred microschools around the state. Uh, and now they've got something like 3000 across six states. And they do some combination of in-person instruction and online learning, um, but it's much more student-centered uh, and student-directed. So the kids can really follow their interests, yeah. and they also um, they're going at their own pace. And so instead of what they call the sage on the stage, they have the guide on the side who's just sort of making sure that they're um, staying on track, making sure that they're setting, you know, ambitious goals for themselves and, and that they're trying to follow through on those goals and guiding them in the right direction. But it's more student centered, uh, whereas others are going, you know, other, you know, want to go in a different direction. You've got the rise of uh um, Mike, uh, there's a, I mentioned earlier, the Great Hearts Charter School chain, which is uh, classical, they now have a micro school chain. Um, and so that goes in a very different direction. It's not so much student censored. They very much do believe in the sage and the stage. And they yeah. believe in, you know, there is a certain Western canon, you know, starting with the Greeks and the Hebrews. And we're going to, you know, going all the way through the modern era. And we want to teach children the best that has ever been thought and said. And, you know, there's this canon that we are going to walk you through step by step. Uh, so, totally different approaches but when you have a system of uh freedom and choice in education then there's room for all different types of schools like that you know it, it's kind of scary thinking about like um i mean it's fascinating and actually really exciting to see that once these options are open there's all these different forms that we haven't even thought of there's all these different forms that become viable and then become marketable and then gain steam but like later on down if you have an entire generation like my generation was all put through public school and we all came out, I, I don't know if we came out good for that, but we kind of came out basically on the same page. But if you have all the, a huge population going through all these different styles of education, how is the population going to meet up when they're all adults working in these jobs? It's just, it, it's kind of scary or fascinating. Like, how is it that going to, are they going to be the same? Are, are they going to get along? Are they going to have the same, are we, are, are we going to just have this, uh, the society where all these different people from all these different education systems can't get along or don't fit into each other? It's a fair question. The, you know, the balkanization argument uh, yeah. has been raised, um, but um, I'm not that concerned about it. Uh, in, in most of Europe uh, and Canada, they are much further along when it comes to school choice and having uh, a wide variety of different 
school systems that, that people can choose among. Uh, and even look, going back to the founding era, people talk about, oh, the public schools are the cornerstone of democracy. Really? So how come we didn't have any public schools when, <laughs> when uh, the, the, in the founding era? Uh, you can't have a cornerstone. You can't have a building um, without a foundation. And so if you're saying this is the foundation, how is it that the building was standing before the foundation was laid down? Well, that's because it wasn't the foundation. In, in the founding era and before then, uh, you had essentially a system of uh, education freedom uh, where most people were paying for private education. There were some states that were subsidizing education either for the poor or they were subsidizing certain school systems and many of them were subsidizing uh a variety like in new york they were subsidizing a variety of different christian schools and some jewish schools so uh this in in some sense is actually going back toward uh you know closer to the system that we had in in the founding era uh and you can still build a country that way that has there's yeah. lots of forces that they're you know bringing people together outside of their particular education system yeah and i'm, I'm sure that a, a mass a populace that's well educated even if they're educated in different ways are gonna have the skill have the basic skills to learn about each other and you know problem solve on the fly when they meet different yeah i think so one last question, I'll let you go. Uh, sure. This might be too big of a question to end with, but the, the religious, you brought up religious schools. How is that, how do you see that that might come uh, attached to, or uh, parents get to send themselves, uh, their kids to a Catholic school, a Muslim school, a Jewish school through the yeah. government uh, funding? Sure. I mean, look, um, almost all schools were religious schools for the first several hundred years of American history. Yeah. And when I say a hundred years, I'm, I'm talking even before the founding. Actually, the the first public school-ish law uh, was in the mid-1600s in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. Huh. And it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Uh, and why why that name? Because if children don't know how to read the Bible, then that old deluder, Satan, is going to come and get them and turn them toward nefarious purposes. Yes, right. Course. So yeah. the very first the very first law that required uh, towns to provide a subsidized education was for a an explicitly religious reason. It was Bible study. And almost all schools were religious schools until the late 1800s, early 1900s, where you started to have the secularization of the public school system. Yeah. Um, and then look, I mean, when's the prayer and school decision? We're talking about like the, I think the 1970s, they they take prayer out of schools. And, and uh, in some parts of the country, that's uh, observed in the breach. Uh, so, I mean, everybody recognized that your religious education was a very important, if not the most important part of your education, right? A answering questions like, why are we here? What is our purpose in life? Is there a God? Well, you know, what is the nature of God? What is the nature of God's relationship with humanity? What does he expect of us, right? All these sorts of things. And, and look, I, frankly, um, you know, I don't have data to prove this, but uh, I strongly suspect 
that the rise in um, you know anxiety and addiction and deaths of despair, whether it's suicide or overdoses, I think a lot of this has to do with taking God out of the classroom, saying that these sorts of questions are you know they're for nights and weekends um, that. Uh, uh, you know, especially among our elites, this idea that uh, atheism, you know, smart people are atheist, um, has led to a lack of purpose in a lot of people's lives. And when you have a lack of purpose, then you're going to have increases in anxiety and depression and, you know, addiction. Yeah. So or I, I think justice. that... And and, and and it ends up, you know, the, the, the God size hole ends up being filled with sorts of uh, ideologies like, you know, the woke ideology, which which really in many, many ways is its own religion. It provides children, uh, you know, it, it provides its practitioners, I should say, with a sense of purpose, uh, a whole bunch of uh, symbols that have meaning, that provide meaning for their life. When, when I walk into a classroom and there is a rainbow flag and a BLM flag, um, it's like, oh, you know, I, I know what that is. I, I basically just walk into a classroom with a crucifix on the wall, right? It's fulfilling a yeah. very, very similar function. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that uh, going to a system where a lot more children are educated in tradition, a traditionally religious environment uh, it might not be a panacea, but it, it will go a long way toward curing the ills that our society is facing right but now. But at this point in time, the government funding is decoupled from that. Uh, well, outside of states like, uh, you know, so the charter schools have to be secular, but you can use an education savings account or a voucher or a tax credit scholarship to go to a religious school. And okay. actually the vast majority of, of families that are using those programs are sending their children to religious schools. Okay. So going back to what you were saying about the government not having oversight with the, with the GSA uh, program, um, then the, the government can't say you can't go to... Uh, the religious school. The That's government right. That's right. Okay. They they uh they actually cannot prohibit you from going to a religious school if they have a school choice program. That was just adjudicated in a case called um, Espinoza v Montana, and then a follow up case called Carson v Macon. Uh, so the the uh, Justice Roberts ruled in the first of those two cases. Uh, basically, there was a there was a program where they were trying to exclude religious schools, and uh, the um, Justice Roberts said that a state does not have to subsidize private education, but if it does, it cannot exclude religious institutions based solely on their religious identity. That that is odious to the Constitution. It violates the free exercise clause of the Constitution to discriminate against religious families and religious schools that way, if they are otherwise eligible. Uh, so, yes, a, a state does not have to enact a school choice program, but if it does, it must include religious schools. Interesting. Fascinating. So how can people uh, follow your work and connect you, support you, uh, follow uh, sure, they, your they lectures, can find a lot of my lecture work, series? Um, if they just Google my name and heritage, you'll you'll see a list of all the reports and op-eds and whatnot that I've uh, studied, uh, that, I've, that I've written and published. Uh, and uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Jason Bedrick. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Jason. This is really educational. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Cheers.